Affordable housing is a basic human right, and to build a better Kentucky where all our people can thrive, safe and reliable housing is absolutely essential. I wanted to be better and meet those goals, and it wouldn't have been possible without Kentucky housing. Knowing that I had a roof over my head, um, food to eat, knowing that I didn't have to want for anything, um, that's a that's a big plus. Being a single parent and not having to worry about um, you know housing, uh, paying bills while you know being in school. But I am here to tell you that there is a lot of beauty in this part of the county. Bringing it home with KHC. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Bringing It Home with KHC. Today we're talking with our multifamily group, Anthony Wright and David Stark. Welcome. Thank Hi, you. thanks for having us. We're commemorating the year anniversary of the historic floods in eastern Kentucky, and we just wanted to talk a little bit about what we're doing from a corporate perspective. And since you guys have been doing some new things, uh, we'd just love to hear what you're doing. Uh, my, my name is David Stark. I'm the Managing Director of Multifamily Programs. And so I, I think one thing that we want to... Um, say from the start is that that we um, we recognize and feel for the people of Eastern Kentucky and what they're going through. I, I think one of the key things that is probably worth mentioning uh, from the multifamily department that, that we know that we're doing and it's already in, in place and um, we've got the process rolling is something that we refer to as our low-income housing tax credits. The way these work is each year the federal government gives each state a certain amount of these 9% tax credits. Last year, Kentucky received about $12.5 million roughly in tax credits. And so um, what happens is at, K at Kentucky Housing Corporation, we determine uh, essentially how those credits get allocated, uh, what projects those, pro those, those tax credits will go to. Um, let's take an example um, and say that there is an apartment complex uh, that, that's going to be built, that's, that's going to be an affordable project using our, our uh, tax credits, and say that costs $10 million to develop. 10% of $10 million would be a million dollars. So 9% of $10 million would be $900,000. So when we talk about a 9% tax credit, we're essentially talking about 9% of that total development cost. What that means is if we had $12.5 million uh, in tax credits to allocate here at KHC for the year, and we awarded $900,000 to a project, we now have $11.6 million to award to other projects. Um, but what that $900,000 does is it allows uh, an investor in that project to take a $900,000 tax credit each year for 10 years. So if you think about that, that's really $9 million dollars dollar for dollar that an investor in that project will get. Of course, it's over the course of 10 years. So we know that a dollar today isn't worth a dollar 10 years from now. Generally, developers come to KHC and they uh, they might have a project uh, that they plan on building. And the developers are kind of the key cog in all of this. They have to find uh, where they're going to build a project, um, who the investor will be, who the lender will be, they have to get together the architect, they work with KHC, they work with the local government, uh, they're working with the neighborhood, the neighbors, all of that. So they are uh, the ones herding the cats, I guess you could say. Um, but what they're going to do then is if they're going to build this $10 million project and they're able to get 
nine million dollars in tax credits over the course of uh, ten years, they can probably find an investor, uh, big investors that have a need for a large amount of, of these tax credits. Think banks, think insurance companies, that type of thing, uh, or uh, what we refer to as syndicators who find these investors uh, and create funds. But what the developer is going to do is find that investor and say, hey, look, I've got this project. Um, I'm going to get $9 million over the course of 10 years in tax credits. And the investor would say, okay, well, that's not worth $9 million to me now, but maybe let's talk round numbers. I get, I'll give you $7 million right now if you let me take all those tax credits. And so there's some ownership documents and lots of paperwork that, that goes into all of this. But ultimately, what those 9% tax credits have done is given that developer the ability to have not, um, I'm sorry, $7 million come in uh, right away uh, to help fund that, that $10 million project. And now they have $3 million to come up with uh, to find a way to finish it up. So that's you know, a very long-winded example. And Anthony, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. Well, I'm Anthony Wright, and I am the Assistant Director of Multifamily Programs. I think you did a really good job of explaining it on a high level. Um, the important takeaway is that the low-income housing tax credit isn't actually a funding source. It is truly a credit that we allocate to development entities who, in turn, as David said, sell it to an investor, and that's how they raise the equity to fund the construction of the project. So it's a great tool from the federal government. Um, it's probably the largest driver of affordable housing in the country. Um, and we look forward to seeing it expanded under the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. And I, and I think another point that's, um, that's worth mentioning is what is given in exchange for those, uh, that allocation of tax credits, which is um, an affordable housing uh, project that is um, that has to stay affordable for a period of 30 years. And so, um, you know, it's it's not necessarily just a giveaway. And that's a competitive process, right? When developers submit their their bids, then there are certain factors that are weighed and we decide which ones we're going to award the 9% credits to, right? That's exactly right. And Anthony, I don't know if you want to talk to the, the I'm happy to talk to the allocation process and scoring and, and things of that nature, or I've talked quite a bit, so I'll let, I'll let you. <laughs> okay. Well, again, to keep it on a high level, um, every state um, housing credit allocating agency, which KHC is the one for Kentucky, um, is required to establish a qualified allocation plan um, and submit it to um, demonstrate how we're going to administer the program and award the credits. And so KHC does that process on a two-year cycle. So we operate under a two-year qualified allocation plan or QAP as we call it. Um, and within that QAP, we establish um, scoring incentives based on the type of development, um, whether it's urban or rural um, and other factors that we you know, choose to incentivize um, for that two-year period. Um, within this QAP, um, we did a substantial amendment for the second year, and we are going to do a set aside of those low-income housing tax credits specifically to address the recovery efforts um, for the, the flooded areas, the flood-prone areas in, in eastern Kentucky that were part of the uh, presidential declaration. Um, that will be um, reviewed slightly differently than we typically would a normal um, tax credit application. 
um, in that um, there won't necessarily be scoring benchmarks because, um, you know, in these special circumstances, it's hard to make um, these projects fit into a certain scoring model, you know, so any incentives that we might have for citing a project in a in an area of high opportunity may not be exactly applicable to a project that's in response to a disaster. So we'll look at it slightly differently, um, but that's how we're going to use the program to help address this um, this um, flooding issue. I know that when this happened, you know, obviously whenever we had flooding in 2021, then we had the tornado um, uh, flooding on a smaller scale in 2021. Then we had the tornado in Western Kentucky, and then we had the flooding in Eastern Kentucky in 2022, all <laughs> while the pandemic was going on. How did you guys figure out the best way that you could address those issues from your perspective? How did yeah. you how did you begin that discussion for the QAP? Yeah, so, you know, Eastern Kentucky is different from Western Kentucky, is different from Louisville, is, you know, is different from uh, Northern Kentucky and, and so on. And so um, with, with each of the disasters that occurred, KHC had to look at what, what's the history of affordable housing in these areas and what's the history of the financing of affordable housing in these areas and what has worked and what have been, um, I guess, some of the hurdles uh, along the way and how do we overcome those? And so in looking at um, the flooding that occurred in Eastern Kentucky in 2022, um, you know, we wanted to be aware of um, and thoughtful about the resources that we were putting into it. And so while we have uh, a number of different resources, after giving it a lot of thought and a lot of discussion and, and talking with partners, it seemed like, you know, really the, the best way to fund these projects would be through this 9% low income housing tax credit. And so while we hope to have uh, maybe other resources available and maybe be able to um, bring even more to the table, um, this is at least one way that we felt we could, we could make the quickest jump in to make the quickest impact. Who sets the income levels for each of the projects? Is it the developer or? The, the low income housing tax credit program has established um, on a county by county level um, what the maximum incomes that can be served under the program, um, as well as maximum rents that can be charged. Um, obviously, that's going to be dependent upon where the project is located and what the market will bear. Um, just because the program will allow, you know, say a $900 rent, um, if the market in that particular area is uh, $600, then you're not going to charge a $900 rent, even though the program might allow you to, because you're just not going to feasibly get that um, in that area. Um, so we look at those factors when we underwrite these projects. Um, what are the maximums that are allowed by the project? as well as what will the market bear, and that's determined via um, a market study that we get on each project application. And traditionally, our projects are for um, severely low income. Is that correct? Well, in, in most cases, the, the low income housing tax credit program serves households at incomes at or below 60% of the area median. Um, there was a, a recent improvement in the last few years to the program that allows it to serve in some cases up to 80% of the area median income. Um, but in order to do that, you have to offset it by doing some deeper income targeting down to like 30% of the area median. So it 
kind of offsets and that that average um, overall remains at about 60% of the area median. And then also, I just wanted to clarify, just because we have this money available doesn't necessarily mean that developers are going to want to go in that area, right? Don't they balance the construction costs? Like you were saying, the rental prices, what all goes into that? As I mentioned, there's a lot of parties involved and um, the the investor or equity provider, if you want to call them that, as well as the lender, everybody's um, going to be looking at these projects to make sure that they are viable. Because like Anthony said, you know, the, an area's, the rent that an area uh, commands might be pretty low and uh, an investor or lender is, is going to want to make sure that um, if they're investing in a project that it, it won't. Uh, it won't fail, it, you know. Well, and, and I will just piggyback on that just a little bit to expand that. I believe, Molly, you were trying to get to the question of, you know, how, you know, if we make this resource available, you know, there, what makes a developer want to pursue it and do a project in that area? And so really the first thing that I think they're going to look at and, and the biggest driver of where a project gets located is the demand for the units. Now, obviously, in... Um, these disaster um, areas, there were units that were destroyed and taken offline. So we know that there is a replacement of these units needed. So um, in some ways, that demand is already baked in um, to the project design. The other thing that it, it will be an incentive for the developers to consider this um, resource to do these projects in this targeted area that we are um, focusing on is the fact that it isn't as, uh, it's first of all, it's its, its own separate set aside within our um, allocation plan, and it's not as competitive as the regular tax credit. So um, they have a better shot of getting a project funded through that set aside, um, which is an incentive to want to, to go into those areas and build those units. Yeah, I was going to just say, can you repeat a little bit of, about that again? So what, what does it mean to have a set aside? What are the incentives? How are we trying to rebuild um, in that area? So we didn't get any additional low-income housing tax credits to respond um, to the disaster recovery efforts. So we kind of have to use what is already in our toolbox. Um, and as David said, you know, we get about 12 and a half million a year. Um, and even before these disasters happen, we allocate um, pretty much every dollar of that every year. Um, and our demand for those resources is typically at about a three to one ratio. So we only can fund about a third of the projects that get submitted. Um, but we did recognize that responding to the recovery efforts um, was important um, and something we wanted to be a part of. And so we kind of carved out, if you will, uh, a portion of our 12 and a half million um, that we typically get specifically for that purpose. And the way we carve that out in the QAP is establishing a set aside, a portion of those credits that is only available for projects responding to the disaster recovery um, efforts in those counties. Yeah. And, and uh, to expand on that a little, a little more, um, you know, what we wanted to make sure was that the projects are getting built in the areas most impacted. And so through an analysis, we, um, you know, we looked at some data and, and um, had some internal discussions and really there are four counties um, that, that were, most impacted um, from what we saw. And those are uh, Breathitt, Letcher, Perry, and Knott counties. And so 
um, if you want to submit um, for tax credits uh, through that set aside, you have your project has to be located in one of those four counties. Um, and so what what that does is, you know, it, it kind of like Anthony, I think, said it takes away the competition. These eastern Kentucky counties aren't competing with the rest of the state to get these tax credits. Okay, so welcome back to Bringing It Home with KHC. Today we're talking with Curtis Stopper. Thanks for having me. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Curtis Stoffer. Um, I'm Managing Director of Housing Contract Administration for Kentucky Housing. Uh, what that means when you translate it from bureaucracy is that I oversee two teams, one of which provides works in partnership with community-based organizations to provide homeless services, including shelter, rapid rehousing, permanent supportive housing, as well as housing opportunities for persons with AIDS and tenant-based rental assistance. And then my other team works on single-family home buyer development and repair. Uh, that also includes working on the administrative side of the weatherization program in partnership with Community Action. So we're just talking a little bit. We're commemorating the one-year anniversary in July of the historic flooding in eastern Kentucky. And so from a corporate perspective, we had to quickly respond. And we're not um, uh, a disaster housing or an emergency housing organization. But can you just talk a little bit about those conversations and a little bit about um how we have started to begin the process to respond to all of those people who are displaced in in Eastern Kentucky. Sure, at least on my team, uh, in response to some earlier ice and flood disasters, uh, we had created a more faster response from our home repair program, which is funded via the State Affordable Housing Trust Fund. And by that, uh, we uh, used our the latitude we have in administering those programs to provide a more expedited review process uh, for uh, to serve homeowners who have been affected by disaster. So we get those repairs uh, to at least ensure their homes are safe and stable. Um, with this more emergency repair focus on the home repair program, uh, we weren't necessarily guaranteeing we would be able to complete all the repairs that a home would need to get up to what we call our minimum habitability standards. We normally enforce the program, but ensure that we could cover most of the most dangerous aspects of the home that was damaged by the by the disaster, be that flood or in prior instances, ice storms. So we had this model already in existence uh, for our home repair program. So we just basically kicked it back out there. Uh, we also, um, in response to increased construction costs we'd seen as a result of the COVID pandemic, uh, we then raised our caps on assistance uh, and total costs for that home repair program as well. So it proved to be a more flexible uh, tool that our community-based developers who would administer our home repair program in their communities, we're able to implement and get money out the door pretty quickly to try to help folks. So amongst the things we would do would be allow them to basically just use photographic evidence uh, to um, document the scope of work, and we would not necessarily require approval of that before they went forward uh, and just require um, our inspectors uh, to also allow uh, photographic inspections rather than on-site inspections, which we would normally require for our home repairs. So given those flexibilities, we really try to view this as an expedited uh, tool to better ensure we can ensure to help uh, homeowners stay in their homes safely and securely in the aftermath of a disaster. So we saw the massive uh, scale of need uh, presented by the southeastern Kentucky floods of 2022. Uh, We at least had the structure in place and partners, uh, particularly being partnership housing in Owsley County, Homes Inc. in Whitesburg and Housing Development Alliance 
in Hazard, basically ready to go. They knew how the program worked. We were able to allocate some additional funding to them so they could start to work immediately. And most importantly, we also gave them some additional discretionary funding uh, in the form of home uh, CHODO assistance for operating funds to help them deal with the capacity challenges they were faced by working to meet this huge increase in demand for their services. So we really do need to highlight the importance of these partners that do the work. KC funds work, we don't do the work. We depend on our strong community-based organizations that are carrying out the work as developers of new single-family home buyer units, and in this case, uh, providing homeowner uh, homeowner occupant repairs uh, to ensure folks uh, can main maintain their housing in the aftermath of disaster. Can you talk a little bit about the additional funding sources that have been created since then, like the, the Team Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky, the, the Relief Fund, and then also the Rural Housing Fund, how we're able to take our funding and marry it with their funding and provide an even more affordable house for an affordable home for some of these recipients? Sure. Um, fortunately, we saw a great response uh, from citizens uh, in Kentucky and throughout the world uh, donating to the governor's uh, Team Kentucky uh, flood relief program in the immediate aftermath of disaster. Uh, many millions of dollars were donated through that fund. Additionally, the state legislature appropriated what they call safe funds to help uh, respond to the disasters in both western and southeastern Kentucky. Um, so what we've seen is uh, folks working on the ground, combining a lot of funds, access through a number of sources to try to help uh, owners and renters who have been affected and or displaced by the flooding. And that includes those private sector dollars and donations uh, through the Team Kentucky Fund, uh, private sector donations administered by the Foundation for the Appalachian Kentucky, um, we've seen USDA uh, Rural Development um, put out a, a disaster recovery repair program as well. Uh, Federal Home Loan Bank of Cincinnati also has disaster repair funds. Uh, and in the past legislative session, uh, the legislature created a new rural housing trust fund uh, to be administered by KHC. Uh, and the initial funding for that uh, was given $20 million in the safe funds specifically delegated to serve uh, Western and Southeastern Kentucky with $10 million in each region. Uh, we will be launching uh, notices of funding availability uh, for those new rural housing trust funds. Hopefully uh, in July or August, um, we have a new rural housing trust fund advisory committee that will be meeting for the first time next week that was created by that legislation. And we've got uh, draft policies ready to go for their review. Uh, so once we get those policies approved, uh, we will be launching the program and hopefully seeking applications can help support the work that's already going on in both Western and Southeastern Kentucky. Were you surprised by how quickly everybody came together? I mean, that's a lot of funding to be created within a year. I mean, it hasn't even, we haven't even celebrated the year anniversary. Absolutely. Uh, and it's especially important by the fact that the government responses in terms of long-term recovery can take a while. Um, we are thrilled to know that we've got nearly $300 million coming to Southeastern Kentucky and Community Development Block Grant Disaster Relief Fund uh, that were just formally uh, allocated in the Federal Register uh, at the start of June. Uh, so it's going to take a little while to get those funds on the ground. So the nice thing about these more flexible dollars that have come into place um, via the sources I mentioned before is we can deploy those much more quickly. So that's why we're excited to use this new rural housing trust fund dollars, but we really view those as gap financing until the significant DR funding can become available for housing resources. And I don't think it can be overstressed. Like you said, we're, we're providing the, we're investing in these repairs, but 
groups like HDA and Homes, and I forget who you said was the third one. Um, yes, I'm sorry. They're they're doing the real work. I mean, they're turning around houses within three months, and that I couldn't believe how quickly that was coming together. Is that is that rare yeah. or is that normal? Uh, no, this is not normal. Um, I was actually in uh, Boonville yesterday for a meeting of the Fahi Kentucky Caucus, and uh, Seth Long, who's the executive director of Homes Inc. out of Whitesburg, said, you know, I've lived in two different worlds. We have pre-disaster and post-disaster, and what post-disaster looks like is completely different than what we did before. We are focused on increasing capacity, working with speed, and really coming up with trying to figure out responses to really unique situations that don't fall within their normal operating model. Um, you know, and Scott McReynolds said, we've got to change our outlook to where we're going to be building 40 houses a year, uh, you know, or and they're probably going to be building a lot more than that. So both of these, uh, particularly homes and HDA, have really worked to increase their capacity. I um, can't remember exactly what he said, but uh, I think uh, Seth said, uh, pre-disaster, I think they had eight or nine people on staff, and right now they're up to 18 or 19, and they're continuing to grow. And they have to grow to meet the need to serve folks in their communities that are so desperate for safe, affordable, and accessible housing. And I may have misunderstood this, but did you say from our perspective, from KHC, um, because we had gone through the pandemic and had received some other federal funding, we were kind of more equipped to, to act quickly? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 you have to take acting quickly in a bureaucratic perspective, so we're not moving with lightning speed. But we, based on the challenges we faced in creating new programs such as the Healthy Home Eviction Relief Fund, where you had to add hundreds of new staff members to ensure we were serving uh, Kentuckians at risk of eviction, it really gave us an operating model about how we need to be agile and responsive and quick to uh, come up with policies and programs that uh, can help access existing and new funding uh, in more strategic ways to best meet the immediate needs of those most at risk. You know, and one thing that was nice about um, our response to the southeastern Kentucky disaster versus some challenges we face in western Kentucky, on the homeless program side of things, in southeastern Kentucky, we have really strong partners. So we were able to quickly engage them with sort of group uh, planning and thinking meetings about how to address the needs of those folks who have been displaced and were either living in uh, FEMA trailers or in state parks or trying to remain on, on site on their own land in really unsafe, uninhabitable housing situations. And thankfully, uh, the organizations we fund to provide homeless services in the southeastern Kentucky region were already engaged in their communities and their disaster, local disaster uh, response planning groups. So they really had a good sense about who they needed to talk to. We just helped provide introductions to our partners at the state parks and the Red Cross uh, and emergency management. So they had a more direct link uh, to get the information they needed to better serve those folks quickly. And unfortunately, that was a challenge we were not able to meet in Western Kentucky in the aftermath of tornadoes. We really don't have that community-based infrastructure uh, in our homeless services side outside of the greater Bowling Green area. Perfect. Well, is there anything else we should know about disaster response from KHC's perspective? Uh, just know that uh, under uh, the leadership of the Deputy Executive Director, Wendy Smith, who has uh, by default become our in-house disaster recovery expert, um, we are striving uh, to make sure that we can work in partnership uh, with the Department for Local Government, our community-based developers and housing providers, our community-based homeless service providers, um, HUD, 
uh, in FEMA in some respects uh, to provide the best and most comprehensive housing response we can put together uh, to meet the needs of those who are trying to recover from the devastating floods of 2022. Um, you know, we view all of this work as partnership, uh, and hopefully we can provide the bureaucratic infrastructure needed to ensure that, that our programs we put out there can be responsive and effective uh, and adaptable to best meet the needs of Kentuckians at risk. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And thanks to everybody who is working uh, to meet the needs of uh, Kentuckians affected by our dis recent disasters. Well, that's a wrap for bringing it home today. We truly hope you've enjoyed our discussion. If you'd like to find out more information about Kentucky Housing Corporation, please feel free to visit www.kyhousing.org. That's www.kyhousing.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast and blog, you can also visit www.bringingithomeky.com. That's www.bringingithomeky.com. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can also email us at communications at kyhousing.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you bring it home with us again.